You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to Experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. Hello and welcome to a bumper edition of Attaboy Clarence, the show in which you come along with me as we travel back in time to a more innocent period in history, when the most pressing social problem in the world was an abundance of B.O. They even wrote entire musical suites about it. I've got the blues, got the blues, cause I miss those daily life boy bathrooms. Stop those B.O. blues. Take a daily bath with a new life boy. You'll notice right away... It's Clean Scent tells you it stops B.O., then in double quick time, that scent will go. That's because Life Boy now is better than ever. It's new, different. Because you'll never sing the B.O. blues. Use Life Boy! I mean, you might think that that was the final word in the B.O. musical treasure chest, but hell no. They even came up with bedtime lullabies, etc. This is the hour... For your life boy shower. Mm. Ah, yes, it's certainly grand to take a life boy bath at night. You'll notice right away. It's clean scent tells you it stops B.O., that in double quick time, that scent will go. That's because life boy now is better than ever. It's new, different. Beautiful, I'm sure you'll agree, and if any of you are still awake, then I'll be very surprised. Uh, excuse me, hey, can you keep it down, please? Hey, wake up, what's going on, if you please? Hi, Suki, could you please stop snoring? I'm trying to present a show. Well, perhaps you should consider making your show in another place instead of my kennel. Your kennel? This is my house. Don't talk such puppycock. You've seen Tom and Jerry cartoons? Yeah? Then you know as well as I know that jog kennels are those funny-looking contraptions with four walls, a door, and a pointy roof. Yes? Exactly. So it's not me who's trespassing, it's you. And if you don't go away, I'll call the police. Hang on a minute. Hello, is this the police? What are you doing? There's a strange man in my dog house. He's carrying a microphone and he keeps paying my bills and putting biscuits in my bowl and hoovering my carpets and watching tennis on my television and making funny sounds in the bathroom and he's always nice to cats. Put that phone down. I'm feeling very threatened, I am. Please send a riot van and some very, 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 very violent dog fans. Came in last night at half past ten That baby of mine wouldn't let me in So move it on over Move it on over Move it on over Move it on over Move over, little dog Cause the big dog's moving in She's changed the 
lock on our front door and my torquey don't fit no more so get it on over move it on over scoot it on over move it on over move over skinny dog cause the fat dog's moving in this dog house here is mighty small but it's better than no house at all so ease it on over Drag it on over, move it on over, move over, old dog, cause our new dog's moving in. a bit of a bumper edition three reviews on the way to you something old something old and something old whether they're blue or not depends on how sensitive you are there is a stripper in one of the films more on that later for now though we're into another famous guessing game a golden age movie star is doing all they can to hide their identity but can the canny what's my line panel including mr ricardo montalban i might add determine their identity and will you get there before them Prick up your ears, sharpen your wits, and see if you can tell. Who the hell is that Hollywood legend? All right, panel, as you know, in the case of our mystery celebrity, we go to a different form of questioning. You ask one question at a time, in turn, moving clockwise, and we'll begin it all with uh, Mr. Montalban. Obviously, you are in the entertainment business. Si, senor. Miss Kilgallen? Uh, are you... Most famous for being in television. Poco, poco. <laughs> Actually, poco, I think there's so that you won't be misled. The answer would be yes and no. It would be pretty much a subjective decision as to which area had brought greater fame, one Could or another. Could we get him to make it? Beg your pardon? Could we get him to make the subjective decision? Uh, no, he shouldn't, I think, be called upon to make it. You can make it later on when, he, uh, right. when you're unmasked, Mr. Sir. Man who evidently plays strip poco. <laughs> oh! Uh, are you uh, are you at present playing on Broadway or on the verge of coming to Broadway in a legitimate play? 
Si, senor. Miss Francis? Well, you, we don't know whether, whether he is here or whether he's going to be here. That's correct. Uh, <clears throat> are you at the present time appearing in a play on Broadway? No, senorita. One down and nine to go, Mr. Hey, Montalban. That accent is wonderful. Uh... Have you, uh, have, you ever, uh, have you ever been in a television series? Si, senor. Miss Kilgallen. Was it a situation comedy? No, senorita. Two down Gee, and eight to go, Mr. Serves. Is this a play that is at present trying out either in Boston or Philadelphia? Si, senor. Miss Francis? Uh, let's see, 17th Dollars this week. Oh, Captain, isn't it? Is it a, uh, is it a straight play rather than a musical? Si, senorita. Mr. Montalva. I want to take a wild guess. James Whitmore. James Whitmore? Is that what you said? Yes. No. Three down and seven to go. Gosh. Dorothy? I just wanted to say that I have a Philadelphia spy known as my husband who says that the performance Mr. Bellamy gives in Sunrise at Campobello is simply thrilling, and it's going to be the toughest ticket in town when the play oh, comes Oh, wonderful. Here, here, much, darling. I'm dead. I think I'm going to pass. Oh, James? I can't think oh. of anyone. Uh, Just waste the question. Mr. Sir. Are you about to assay in New York the role of a former president of the United States? Oh. He's saying you are. We'll cut things off there. Do you have any idea who we're listening to? I have to say, this particular star hasn't done the best job of hiding his voice, and if you want an extra clue, he was still active in movies right through to the 1990s. He might even have shared a screen with a ghostbuster. Anyway, have a think, and I'll reveal the answer later in the show. You know what the world needs more of right now? Rom-coms. I don't care what shape or size they come in, but give me all the rom-coms you can, please, and in vast numbers. The rom-com has been a staple of cinema history since the beginning. It's one of the most enduring forms of screen entertainment because sometimes we might all need a break from harsh reality. We want to be a bit closer to the leaping sensation when our hearts are set alight by those most intoxicating of sensations, love and happiness. And if you want a real shortcut to that feeling, then I can heartily recommend 1957's Tammy and the Bachelor, starring Debbie Reynolds, Leslie Nielsen, Walter Brennan, Faye Ray, Mildred Natwick, and Sidney Blackman. You want a clip? Okay, calm down. Here's a clip. You always got business in the swamp, but you won't never tell me what it is. Taint the swamp this time, Tammy. I'm going down the river, down the whirlpool. What for? Well, I hear tell an airplane crashed. Might be some salvage floating around down there. And you shouldn't be rowing at night with your rheumatism. Besides, the authorities are more than likely to take charge of any wreckage. Yeah, they'll be hunting too far upstream. They don't know that anything hits the water between here and Vicksburg ends up down the big whirlpool. I'm going with you. Well, the whirlpool ain't no place for girls. I got strong arms. Well, there's something besides rowing, too. We have to run into a lot of dead bodies. I got a strong stomach, too. Tammy, played by Debbie Reynolds, is a 17-year-old girl living out on the Mississippi River with her grandpa, a former preacher and now booze brewer named John, played by Walter Brennan. One day, a small aircraft crashes nearby and Tammy and grandpa pull from the wreckage a young pilot named Peter Brent, played by Leslie Nielsen. 
As they nurse him to health, Tammy finds herself falling helplessly in love with him. He's nigh on to gone. But he ain't plumb gone. Big danger's pneumonia. I'll get Grandma's brick to heat his feet. I'm used up. You call me if you need me. come this far, Lord, it wouldn't be sensible to take him now, would it? And Grandma, if his soul gets that far, shoo it back. Shoo it back, ma'am. Please. After her grandpa is arrested for brewing moonshine in the swamp, Tammy must place herself in the care of Peter and his sophisticated family in nearby Natchez. Instantly, Tammy finds herself judged by Peter's well-to-do mother and the more sophisticated social set in which Peter mixes. This place has had its day. Oh, I'm not so sure about that, Mr. Bissell. Oh, it's all right as a curiosity, a relic of the past. But nowadays, you've got to look to the future. Move with the tide if you ever hope to become rich. Pete's already rich with all this good land just itching to grow things. <laughs> My dear child, I saw this good land as I drove up. Furrowed and hilly. Probably played out years ago. Anyone with land is rich. Really, Tammy? Well, it ain't like the river that flows away underfoot. It's always here, solid and secure. It's like Grandpa always says. There's two ways in which man comes nigh to doing the work of God, the bringing of life. One's in the growing of things out of the soil, and the other's in having children. Naturally, you're an expert on both, Tammy. However, it isn't long before Tammy's innocent charm and practical wisdom begins to win over her hosts. I thought that was quite a successful opening for Pilgrim's Week, Mrs. Grant. Yes, last night went off splendidly, thanks to Tammy. How do you think I'll look with a short haircut and a long cigarette holder? What? I don't follow you. Tammy has made my mind up for me. Come the end of pilgrimage week, I'm moving to New Orleans. I'm going to do nothing but paint. If Grandma Hoosets can do it, I can. What about Brentwood Hall? You know, if Peter doesn't want it, I'm going to sell it, even to a Yankee. Oh, I wouldn't be in a hurry to sell if I were you, Miss Rennie. That's quite an about face, isn't it? Yes, guess it is. But seeing this place come to life for a few hours last night, watching Tammy like a ghost out of the past with all the warmth and charm of a more leisurely era, made me realize something. She called me a lonely old man with nothing to show for my life but indigestion. In a way, she was right. Seems as if Tammy's had quite an influence on all of us. She opened my eyes to a lot of things, made me realize that I'd been running away. Okay, first of all, if you haven't ever seen Tammy and the Bachelor, my goodness me, you have a treat in store. It's a total humdinger. This is one of the most perfectly played romantic comedies ever made. And who knew that the naked gun's Frank Drebin could be so dashing? Leslie Nielsen was an absolute fox back in the day. You'll be swooning all over the place. That's only if you can see past the perfectly played performance of Debbie Reynolds, who brings Tammy to life absolutely wonderfully here. There's something so wholesome and so utterly appealing about her character, you can't quite believe that she's real. It's like seeing a favorite doll come to life, and when halfway through she bursts into song, it's a real weepy moment. I loved it. Can't let him go. And she's just so peachy keen and pretty and full of pep. Every time someone knocks her down, she rolls up her sleeves and gets back up again. It's a marvelous role. The standout performance for me, though, is from Mildred Natwick, the great 
Mildred Natwick, who completely steals every scene she's in, as the liberal-minded aunt who is Teen Tammy from the very outset. Faye Ray, too, as Mrs. Brent, is unrecognizable to begin with, but her slow thawing and gradual warmth towards the new young girl in her house is brilliant. I cheered, I laughed, I swooned, I sang along to that song. I fell in love with not just Tammy, but everyone around her. It's the kind of movie you wish was a million hours long. If you like your rom-coms syrupy sweet and life-affirming, you are absolutely going to adore Tammy and her adventures in the Brent household. If you're like me, you'll be punching the air and waltzing with yourself at the closing credits. One of the most genuine, most enchanting, sweetest movies ever made. Don't be put off by the Technicolor or the 50s vibe. Tammy and the Bachelor is a true heartwarmer. You'll love it, and it'll love you right back. Now, how's this for an up and down day? Fred Johnson's out playing golf. He smacks the living daylights out of his ball, and wouldn't you know it, it's a hole in one. He does what anyone would do after this magical event. He picks up the ball and writes his initials and the date upon it. Things are looking up for Fred, aren't they? Now's the time to buy a lottery ticket, if you ask me. Holy mackerel! Hey, I... I... Oh, baby, they'll never believe us. Oh, oh. Wait a minute, you little... March 18th. What could go wrong? Well, let me tell you what could go wrong. Fred takes another smack at the very same ball which goes flying into a ditch. Wait, there's more. When Fred gets to the ditch, he finds his ball, but also a dead lady. And guess what's next to the dead lady? No, you're wrong. No, it wasn't that either. Fred finds a package. And inside the package are some printing plates for making counterfeit money. Who said golf was a boring game? Golf club murder victim identified. Go on. Body of the murder victim discovered near the golf club yesterday was identified early this morning as that of Billy Benson, line dancer at the 37 Club. Identification was made by Tina Love, another dancer with whom the dead girl had become friendly. Go on. I know she was in trouble, declared Miss Love. I found her putting on her makeup and washing it right off again. She was crying so hard. She said, what do they do to a guy for, for counterfeiting? The boys will be interested in that last part. Well, the murderer of the dead lady comes back, presumably from some kind of tea break between all the dead-making business, and finds the package is gone. No idea why he left the package there, by the way. The package is gone, but Fred's blooming golf ball is not gone. And so he surmises, correctly as it happens, that someone with Fred's initials has pinched his package, which sounds terribly wrong now I've said it. Yes, the murderer, knowing that F.J. must be nearby, sensibly announces to the world at large that there's a dead lady in the ditch and that Fred should give him back his package and keep his trap shut, otherwise Fred and his family will end up like the dead lady. It's a mission. Hole in one. F.J. I tell you, he's here now. Somebody will hear you. Come out of there. Tony, no. Come out or I'll blast you out. Tony, let's get out of here. I'm not taking any chances. 
Tony, that may be the cause. Listen, F.J., whoever you are, if you're smart, you'll forget you were here. And don't go to the cops. Tony, please. And just to make sure, I'm going to find out who you are, F.J., and I'll be watching you, where you go and who you talk to. And if you've got a family, I'll be watching them, too, every day and every hour. Tony, they're coming. You get that, F.J.? You'll be hearing from me, F.J. This is disastrous news for Fred, as he's a widower in charge of his two daughters, who he loves more than anything else in the world. So there's your setup for Shadowed from 1946, starring Lloyd Corrigan as Fred, Anita Louise, and Terry Moore as his two daughters, Carol and Ginny. Fred wants to do the right thing, but he also wants his daughters safe. What to do? Well, if you're the screenwriter of Shadowed from 1946, that's right, if you are Julian Harmon and Brenda Weisberg who wrote this thing, then the thing you'll do is be very nervous and very suspicious and very dull for 70 agonizing minutes. There is the kernel of a very decent suspense episode here. In fact, suspense did it much better in radio plays such as Another Man's Poison with Charles Boyer. The problem is that it sets up far too quickly and all you're left with is Lloyd Corrigan agonizing for an hour as the family are menaced by the gang. It's great to see someone like Lloyd Corrigan leading a movie, don't get me wrong, and Anita Louise is fabulous, if slightly underused here. The man in the director's seat is none other than John Sturges, he who gave us The Magnificent Seven, Bad Day at Black Rock, Gunfight at the OK Corral, The Great Escape. This was his second film as a director, and he does struggle to keep the tension at a rolling boil. That said, if you go in expecting B-movie thrills, you will get them. They're just fairly well spaced apart. It's a shame because the ridiculousness of the first act does make you think you're in for something quite zany. It opts for moody and dark instead, which I guess gives rise to its noir title of Shadowed. Check it out. Tell me what you think. Finally, one of those crime programmers of the late 40s that took the world by storm, I love a police procedural. I don't just want detectives skimming the town for informants. I want to see actual detection going on. And from the look of the opening credits, you may think you're in for another kid glove killer or a cool Northside 777. We get mug shots and fingerprints and magnifying glasses and everything. And I'm totally here for all of that. 1949's Scene of the Crime is our film, and I need forensics in here now. We open on a bit of a brutal murder. Ed Monaghan is a career cop who's off duty but gunned down in front of several witnesses. Hey, who, me? Just a minute. Yeah, sure. You crazy lobo! Shut up, roll. When the cops arrive, Monaghan's ex-partner, Mike Conovan, played by Van Johnson, finds that Ed was carrying $1,000 in cash at the time. The rumor spreading like wildfire is that Monaghan was involved in some shady business. So Conovan takes it upon himself to clear his former partner's name, which is handy because their names are very similar. What about the folding money? That crisp green stuff they found in Monaghan's coat. What about it? It'll have to go. And don't ask me not to print it. I won't, friend. Look, Mike, we're friends, all right. But if I killed a man, you'd rip me for it. You wouldn't like it, but you'd do it. It's your job. It's my job to print facts. But these aren't facts yet. Did he have the money on him? Or didn't he? 
Mike's wife, Gloria, is becoming ever fearful that her He-Man husband is going to come home one day in a wooden box. The killing of Monaghan has convinced her even more that now's the time for Mike to quit the force and live his life with her. But he's having none of it. You make me feel that I have to apologize for every move that I make. You make me feel guilty about you. And you're making me afraid of getting killed and what it would do to you if I were. But, Gloria, you knew you were marrying a cop. You knew what it meant. You know, you used to help me. Every day in a hundred ways, build me up. But now you're tearing me down. This case, it won't gel. It keeps swinging just out of my reach. Why? Because I'm afraid. As Mike begins to investigate more, he's drawn into a shadowy world of bookies, stool pigeons, strippers, and assassins. A seedy netherworld that lies just beneath the veneer of Los Angeles society and which is threatening to erupt at any moment. Remarkably, this torrid little thriller came from the glossiest house in Hollywood, MGM, who dipped their toe into crime and squalor with detective flicks such as Kid Glove Killer, which is so much fun. They bravely threw their biggest star at the time, Van Johnson, hot from the Dr. Gillespie dramas and unproven in noir and crime, into this hyper-authentic take on modern crime. In fact, authentic might be too tame a phrase for what we're seeing here. The dialogue is so guttural and of its time, that sometimes it almost borders on parody. Crazy Lobo. What? Monaghan's killer. Crazy Lobo with a twisted left hand. Didn't they learn you anything at that police academy? Yeah, that the best way to learn was to ask questions. And if any old shellback got sore, it reminded me I had to learn once himself. Or were you born with that shell on your back, Piper? Give the band a cigar. Uh, Lobo's a gung, thug, hoodlum from downstate. Didn't they spot Arthur Webson the other day with a couple of Lobos? Fill it in for him, Piper. Webson? A fixer. Filled in? Yeah. You know, when you run all the cards through that electric brain, then you don't find what you're after, just ask Piper. That's me, electric brain. Pardon the short circuit. Webson, a fixer. Two Lobos seen with him. It's a slim string to work on. The small issue I have with this film is that no character ever actually talks like a human being. Everyone seems restricted to using dialogue from Dashiell Hammett's office trash can, which is okay to a point, but every now and then you do need a slight break from all the style so we know what the hell's actually going on with the plot. That said, it's glorious to see MGM going gritty for a change. MGM were known as Hollywood's Tiffany studio. Glamorous and light on substance, so when they dared to dive into crime in a brutal way, they really went for it. This is a labyrinthine tale of informants and corruption and betrayal and disillusion. I had my theories about who was okay and who wasn't from start to finish, and it was only when the end credits rolled that I realized that trusting people wasn't ever the point. No one is an angel here. And what characters we have, Lily the stripper, who innocently falls for the cop who's using her. Gloria, the wife whose nightmares have warned her about her husband's fate. Sleeper, the stool pigeon, who knows he's destined to die but just can't help himself. It's packed to the rafters with fascinating human beings. It's obtuse at times, and the dialogue can kick you out of understanding what's at the heart of things. But as crime noirs go, there's a kind of glow around it that others just don't ever approach. The highest compliment that I can pay to the film 
is that it feels like it was made six months ago, not 74 years ago. It's like a lost Tarantino draft by way of Michael Mann. Do check it out, 1949's Scene of the Crime deserves to be far more scene of the crime than it is. Okay, this is a total left field play today. This radio play has nothing to do with anything that I've been telling you about today, but it's so good that I've been wanting to play it forever. You all know and adore Hume Cronin, that journeyman of classic cinema, actor, writer, and collaborator, active until very recently, and a true ally of all things creative. Well, in 1946, Hume Cronin took the lead in one of the most tangled knots that the great suspense ever produced. I'm not even going to try and describe the thrills that await you in this episode. Just go in blind and enjoy. Hume Cronin stars in a truly wild episode of Suspense. You're going to love this one. I leave you in his company and suspense for Blue Eyes. See you afterwards. Tonight, Roma Wines bring you Mr. Hume Cronin as star of Blue Eyes. A suspense play produced, edited, and directed for Roma Wines by William Spear. Suspense. Radio's outstanding theater of thrills is presented for your enjoyment by Roma Wines. That's R-O-M-A. Roma Wines. Those excellent California wines that can add so much pleasantness to the way you live. To your happiness in entertaining guests. To your enjoyment of everyday meals. Yes, right now, a glass full would be very pleasant, as Roma Wines bring you Hume Cronin in a remarkable tale of... Suspense. Today began just like any other day. Got to bed early last night because I had to go over the accounts with Mr. Bevins. And when you go over the accounts with old Hawkshaw, you've got to be in tip-top shape. Well, I dressed myself rather carefully this morning. I put on the necktie with the little flowers on it, the blue and red one. Jane said she liked it. Told me it matched my eyes. Made them look bluer. <laughs> well, I went down to breakfast. My wife, Laura, was having her coffee. Good morning, Oliver. Morning, dear. I'll have to warm your coffee. Here's the paper. Oh, thanks. Oliver, must you wear that tie? Huh? That frightful necktie. Not at all becoming. Well, it matches my suit. It's a perfectly dreadful shade. Makes you look like a rube. Well, I like it. Well, I don't. And I wish you wouldn't wear it. Oliver, aren't you listening to me? Oh, sure, sure. I, I was reading. Oh, well, don't let my conversation disturb you. That's all right. Oliver. What's wrong now? Oliver, I don't know what's gotten into you lately. You, you forget things. You scarcely seem to hear a word I say. Aren't you feeling well? I feel fine. Why shouldn't I? Well, you look a bit drawn. I believe I'd better make an appointment for you with Dr. Sack. Look, Laura, there's nothing the matter with me. i better get going now. I'll be late. Well, you haven't finished your breakfast. That's all I want. I'm not very hungry. Where's my briefcase? On the hall table. Oliver, are you sure you're not ill? You look possibly hollow-eyed. I never felt better in my life. Well... See you tonight, dear. Goodbye. Oliver! Yes? I hope you'll all... Well, nothing. Goodbye. Laura was like that. A chronic warrior. She seemed to take delight in fretting about things that wouldn't even occur to the average person. Imagine me not feeling well. Well, I've never had a sick day in my life. 
trellis is my prize rose bush. Climbing talisman, they call it. Suddenly, I was thinking of Jane. Perhaps if I put a rosebud in my buttonhole, Jane would notice. She'd say something about how the scent matched her perfume, and then maybe we'd talk about roses, and I could impress her. Because I know quite a lot about roses. I was just about to pick one of the buds. Well, well, good morning, Mr. Newfield. Good morning. A two lettuce for you, Oh, good morning, Mr. Crowley. Oh, yes. So you're doing a little gardening, huh? Well, no. I, I was just sort of looking garden over. Oh, well, that's a mighty fine garden you got there, Mr. Littlefield. Uh, you worked pretty hard on it, too, I suppose. Yes, I've given it a fair share of my time. Yes, a little too much, maybe. I beg your pardon? Well, it pays to be on the safe side, Mr. Littlefield. Now, of course, of course, this ain't none of my business, but it seems to me... Well, you're getting to look a little, uh, peaked there, man. You, you better go easy. Yeah. Well, uh, good morning, Mr. Crowley. Yeah, good morning to you. I've got to get going anyway. Oh, it's the second time I'd heard it. And the day was hardly more than an hour old. First, Laura, now the postman. I felt all right. I felt swell. I thought of the rosebud again. I bent down, snipped off a bud from the bush. I had to take the Red Cross pen out of my lapel to get the rose in, but I didn't mind taking the time. After all, one minute more or less never harmed anyone. I didn't know then how precious a minute can be. Glanced at my watch, 8.23. Had to run part of the way to the station. I arrived out of breath, panting, perspiring a bit, but I made it. Steve and Joe helped me aboard. Hey, Oliver. You want to get an earlier start in the morning. Well, I, I was delayed at the house. <laughs> Listen to old Ollie Weed. <laughs> and you're the guy who used to be track scar in high school. Yeah. <laughs> Where's the old wind, Ollie? Oh, I'm all right. Just a second now. Oh, seriously, Oliver, it's dangerous business for a man of your age to be running around that way. Man of my age? Listen to him. You'd think I was 80. Say, you know what you need? Maxidrine. Pep you up. Make you feel like a million. I tell you, there's nothing wrong with me. I got two or three here with me. Little box in the pocket somewhere. Ah, here, here we are. Let me make you a little present. Non-habit forming, you know. Maxidrine? What do I want with Maxidrine? You, know, you keep it in your pocket. Take a half of one with some water when you get a little... That sagged out feeling, you know. Pep you up like a million. Make a new man out of you. All you had to do to get membership was smile at me and say, Mr. Littlefield, you look sick. Mr. Littlefield, you look peaked. Mr. Littlefield, why don't you just find a nice quiet corner and go and curl up and die, Mr. Littlefield? It was nine o'clock when I got to the office. I noticed a lumpy feeling in my solar plexus. Right here. A little to the left of my heart. It was just indigestion, of course. I got my accounts together and I went into Mr. Bevan's outer office. There was Jane at her desk. She looked lovely this morning. Sunlight coming through the Venetian blinds seemed to blend with her blonde hair. All at once I wondered why I'd never married Laura. Sunlight never did anything for her hair. Jane was busy and she didn't see me come in. I coughed. Lightly. <clears throat> oh, oh, Mr. Littlefield, good morning. Good morning, Jane. I heard you cough. Do you have a cold? No. No, I haven't a cold. I never felt better in my life. Oh, I'm 
sorry, Mr. Littlefield. Forgive me. I I didn't mean to snap at you. I'm afraid I'm a little jumpy this morning. Well, I can understand your being jumpy. Mr. Bevins can certainly be an old bear if he finds a mistake in the book. You certainly can. But I wouldn't. I wouldn't worry. You're, you're well-dressed for the occasion. That rose in your lapel should appeal to his more pleasant side. That, that is, if he has a pleasant side. <laughs> I just happened to notice the bottom one of the bushes in the garden this morning. I don't know why I wore it. Oh, it looks very nice. Thank you. It's a climbing talisman. Do you know anything about roses? Uh, no, no, I'm afraid not. They're, they're my favorite flower, though. I grow them as a hobby. I had some exhibited once. Oh, my dear, you must be quite a gardener. Oh, no, 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 not really. I, you see, there isn't a lot to growing roses. You oh. just have to watch your soil carefully. Mm-hmm. Irrigate, of course. Oh. And uh, roses take a good deal of spraying, too. Oh, yes, I see. And let me tell you, if you intend to exhibit your flowers, there mustn't be any evidence of insect damage. Uh-huh. You see, a rose is judged first by its form and color, then substance, uh, then... Excuse me, Mr. Yes, sir. You see him, Littlefield? Uh, why, why, yes, sir. Why, Mr. Bevins, Mr. Littlefield has been waiting for you in the outer office. You, you didn't call, sir. It's and necessary for me to call my employees after I've made a specific appointment? I'm sorry, Mr. Bevins. I'm sure that Mr. Littlefield... Mr. Littlefield's would... a fool. Have him come right in here. Yes, sir. Oh, Mr. Littlefield, I'm... It's all right, Jane. It's all right. I'll, I'll go right in. I walked to the door... I could feel that lump inside of me getting bigger, almost choking. What right Bevins have to say such things about me? And in front of Jane. I reached for the door handle and turned. Well? Well, little field? What are you standing there for? Come in. Come in. Sit down. Little field, I believe you're aware of my sentiments regarding punctuality. I expect my employees to be on time. In fact, I demand that they do. Well, you see, Mr. Bevan... Never mind. We'll discuss the matter at a later date. Right now, I want to see the vouchers. Last month's. Yes, sir. Right here. Littlefield, these are the May vouchers. Oh, so they are. Sorry, Mr. Bevan. Uh, here. Hmm. Let me see the audit on these. Yes, sir. Not the sales slips, Littlefield. The audit. What the devil's wrong with you, man? What? A person would think you're completely addled. Addled? Well, I, I, I'm not addled. And I'm not a fool, either. You you had no right to call me that, do you understand? Littlefield, I think you must be ill. I'm not ill. Don't say I'm ill, because I never felt better in my life. All, all that's wrong with me, Mr. Bevins, is that I'm mad. Yes, that's the word for it. I think you are mad. Completely mad. No, that's not what I mean, either, Mr. Bevins. I'm perfectly all right, except that I'm not going to sit here and listen to you calling me names. I've got 17 years' worth of temper stored up right here, and I'm warning you, Mr. Bevins, I'd like to tell you just what I think of you. Get out of this office, Littlefield. If there's one thing, I will not tolerate it. Insubordinate. All right, Mr. Bevins, all right. So I'm insubordinate. And it may surprise you to know that I've wanted to be insubordinate for 17 long years. See here, young man. 17 years I've worked for you, and, 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 and what thanks have I had for it? Two dollar raises and listening to you Littlefield, about... Littlefield, get out! You're fired. I know, sure, I'm fired. But that's all you can do to me, Mr. Bevins. All you can do is fire me. Why didn't you fire me a long time ago? So there I was. Out of a job. What was the next step? Couldn't go home in the middle of the day. I could, but you don't know Laura. Laura. I'd never have been able to explain it to her. She wouldn't have understood. 
She never understood anything. With her, it was payday, the bridge club, a new hat for Easter. Everything suburban, everything in a rut, always in a rut. I went back and sat in my office to think. Then I got up and went to the water cooler. Pulled my handkerchief out to wipe my hands and something fell out of my pocket. It was that little pill box. I opened it. There were three and a half of those maxidrines in it. I swallowed them all. Then I sat down and a little later I began to feel clear in my mind. My life was this awful, deadly grind because I was married to Laura. She was the cause of all my the cause of my failure, the reason for my losing my job. Something would have to be done about Laura. Why not eliminate the cause? That was it. Eliminate the cause and you have the situation licked. Eliminate the cause. Suddenly my mind was made up. I must kill Laura. Bringing you Hugh Cronin in Blue Eyes by Charles Smith and Lewis Reed. Roma Wine's presentation tonight in radio's outstanding theater of thrills, Suspense. Between the acts of Suspense, this is Ken Niles for Roma Wines. Every great artist creates many fine paintings but there is usually one picture in which the artist's talents combine magnificently to produce a masterpiece. It is frequently so with wine. Long famed for the excellence of Roma wines, Roma, America's greatest vintner, has created a limited bottling of outstanding character. Grand estate wines, each a masterpiece of fine winemaking. Yes, Grand Estate Wines by Roma possess all the qualities of wine greatness. Brilliant clarity, full fragrance, and soft, rich taste. For Roma vintners with infinite patience and age-old skill have captured from choice of grapes the ultimate in wine goodness. That is why discriminating wine users everywhere recognize Grand Estate Wines as the crowning achievement of vintner skill. Tomorrow, enjoy the delightful experience awaiting you in Grand Estate, California Wines. For gracious hospitality before dinner, serve your guests Grand Estate Medium Sherry. For smart afternoon or evening entertaining, delight everyone with Grand Estate Ruby Port or Golden Muscatel. Remember the name, Grand Estate Wines by Roma, each a taste masterpiece. And now, Roma Wines bring back to our Hollywood soundstage Hume Cronin, who has Oliver Littlefield in Blue Eyes, continues a narrative well calculated to keep you in suspense. Murder's a tough proposition. It takes a lot of thought. It mustn't be messy or violent. It's got to be quick and effective. Or a guy stands a good chance of getting caught. How to do this thing? How to do it without a slipper? Suddenly I had it. Laura took some medicine every night at bedtime. Two tablespoons of powder that Dr. Thackeray prescribed for her in a glass of warm milk. 
If I were to get some poison that looked like that powder and subst... Yes. That was perfect. It couldn't miss. Quick and effective. Three o'clock. I walked up the steps of the public library and went in. Yes, sir. Can I help you? Uh, I'd like to see some books on... Uh, yes? Well, uh, I, I just wanted to look something over on... Um, on, on roses. Oh, I see. Well, that's horticulture, section five, just across the aisle. Oh, yes. Horticulture, of course. Thank you. I took a book from the shelf, thumbed a few pages, then finally decided to risk a quick glance in the direction of the librarian. See if she was still watching me. The desk was empty. She'd left it. Then I saw where she was, at the other end of the library, stacking books on a handcart. Here was my chance. I could slip across to the science alcove without her seeing me. I went to the section marked Science, Medicine. Looked in the card index file under P, Pharmacology. Pharmacology and Therapeutics by Walter A. Bastido, PhGMD. Someday I'm going to look up those initials and find out what they mean. I found the book. The index said, look under hydrocyanate acid and cyanate. And there it was. Cyanate. Used as an intensifier in photographic development. Two and a half grains of this cyanate is reckoned to be a lethal dose. I could buy this stuff at a photographic supply store. Two and a half grains... Pardon me, sir. Yes? I'd like to put these books away if I may. Oh, you're the gentleman who was looking for books on roses. Yes, yes, I was. Well, I'm afraid you're in the wrong department, sir. As I told you a moment ago, you'll find everything on roses in the... Oh, Oh, that was clumsy of me. I'm terribly sorry. It's all right, my fault. I was in no way. You dropped your book. Yes. Thank you. Well, this isn't a book on roses at all. It's pharmacology. Oh. Well, you know about that... I must have picked up the wrong book somewhere. Yes. You must have. She stared at me as I put the book back on the shelf. I turned and walked away. I could feel her eyes following me to the door. I was conscious of that lump under my heart again. It felt heavy and hard like a rock. There was a dryness in my throat, too. I swallowed a few times to get rid of it. At 4th and Sutter, there's a photographic supply place. Good afternoon, sir. Good afternoon. Uh, I'd like some cyanate. Yes, how much do you want, sir? Oh, uh, enough to treat some negatives with. Quite a few negatives. Mm -hmm. About two pounds? Oh, yes, I think that'll be fine. Now, I'll wait for you. What kind of camera have you been using? What? Uh, oh, I have a brownie camera. A uh, brownie, yeah. Yeah. A lot of people are going back to him since the war. You can take good pictures of box cameras and use it right. You know what they say? It's it's not the camera, but the man behind the camera that makes the picture. Yeah. What's negative do you shoot with it? Negative? Well, as far as negatives go, I, I shoot... Two and a quarter by three and a quarter, probably. That's what most brownies do. Yes, that's the size. I wasn't going to be able to keep this up much longer. I was bound to make a slip sooner or later. Couldn't say that I was in a hurry. He might get suspicious. A man buying poison shouldn't ever be in a hurry. Why was he taking so long? I could feel perspiration on my forehead, cold and damp. The room 
began to look lopsided. Everything seemed to be swaying. Swaying. Grip the counter with both hands. Grip it tightly. Now, smile. Well, here you are, sir. That'd be 57 cents. Yes. Here you are. Thank you. Hey, hey, just a minute. Hey, hey, mister. Hey. I heard him shout after me, but I kept right on walking. Faster. So a photographic studio was just like a drugstore after all. If you bought poison, you had to sign for us. Well, I wasn't going to. No, I wasn't going to. I, I ducked around the corner. Hey, hey, mister. Hey, hey. Hey, officer. Did you see a fellow just come out of here? What fellow? A gray suit, blue tie, rose in his buttonhole. No? Uh, he's gone. Now, what do you make of that? The guy gives me a 20 instead of a 1, disappears. Well, I can do business like that all day long. I won't forget that, gent. No, sir. <laughs> I arrived home at 6.30. Laura wasn't there. The table wasn't set. Well, she was probably late shopping. I went upstairs and I found the bottle in the medicine chest. The cyanate matched the powder in the bottle perfectly. She'd never be able to tell the difference. I poured half the bottle's contents into the sink, marked with my finger the level of the medicine, and then refilled the bottle with cyanate up to the mark and shook it so as to mix it thoroughly. I emptied the rest of the poison into the sink and let the water run for a minute. Now it was done. Everything accomplished and very... All I had to do now was... Wait. I glanced at the bedroom door. It was closed. All the doors in the second floor were closed. That's another thing. That's another thing I hated about Laura. So precise about her housekeeping. Everything in its place, even to closing the doors when a room wasn't in use. I went back downstairs. I tried to light a cigarette, but my hands were beginning to shake. Nerves again. I took a book from the table by the sofa. Tried to read. Then I realized what I was reading. Funny I should have picked up that book. Memory album of Oliver and Laura Littlefield. <laughs> and a dance program tied in pink ribbon. Homecoming dance, Indiana University, 1928. First anniversary. Oliver and Laura Littlefield celebrating their first anniversary, July the 12th, 1929. They invite you to an informal tea. Suddenly I was lonesome for Laura. I missed her. Where was she? Why was she late? I wanted to hear her voice, even if she nagged me. It didn't really matter. I wanted to hear her say something. I thought back over the events of that day. I thought of my married life with Laura. It hadn't been as bad as I let myself believe. It hadn't been bad at all. Laura loved me. She did love me, and I loved her. I must have been crazy to even think of killing her. What would I ever do without her? I leaped to my feet and I ran up the stairs to the medicine chest. I poured the cyanide down the drain, all of it. I washed out the sink with my hand to be sure that the last bit of the poison was gone. It's only then that I... that I was calm again. At last, I'd come to my senses. I loved Laura now more than ever before. I... I thought of Laura. I thought of 
the necktie I was wearing, the one that she didn't like. I changed it before dinner. I opened the door of the bed. Then I saw her. Sprawled on the bed, her face distorted in pain. I went to the bed and I shook her. Laura. Laura. She didn't move. She was cold. Terribly cold. Hello? Hello, Dr. Thacker? This is Oliver Littlefield. Can you come right over, doctor? Something's happened to my wife. Uh, I think she's dead. You were right, Mr. Littlefield. She's this, uh, this glass she drank from. It's poison. Why? Why? I'm afraid, sir, it looks like suicide. Suicide? Oh, she wouldn't do a thing like that. She had no reason. She, she had a reason, Mr. Littlefield. Your wife was dying of an incurable disease. But that's not true. She would have told you. She wanted to keep it from you. Those were her wishes. I'm sorry, Mr. Littlefield. Without saying anything more, he left the room. I sat there, staring at Laura. My mind was a blank. I don't know how long it was until Dr. Peckham came back. Uh, Mr. Littlefield. What is it? Uh, this bottle. That's the medicine you prescribed for my wife. I think not. Of course it is. What are you talking about? I didn't prescribe cyanide. Well, uh, seems uh, that I may be obliged to revise my diagnosis of your wife's death. I don't understand. Really, Mr. Littlefield, isn't it quite obvious? Your wife's death was caused by a lethal dosage of cyanide. Her medicine bottle was filled with cyanide. The odor is still there. Yes, but I can explain that. You see, there wasn't a bit of it left. I, I threw it all away. She must have bought some herself. I hardly think she'd fill her medicine bottle with poison if she intended to commit suicide. Wait a minute. Wait, please, Doctor. You've got to listen to me. I, I didn't do it. If that's what you're thinking, I didn't do it, Doctor. Doctor Thacker, you've known me for a long time. You, you can take my word for Hello, it. Hello, operator. Give me the police. You see, it started with that blue tie. Made my eyes look bluer. Everybody told me I was sick. I started to feel sick. Yes, this is an emergency. Then the rosebud and Mr. Bevins and the maxidrine. I didn't know what I was doing for a little while. Hello, this is Dr. Thacker. Better send someone to 6931 Claire. You know, right away. people can drive you out of your mind if, if they keep saying the same thing to you over and over again. Beg your pardon? You've got to listen. It was the blue tie. Laura started this. She said I was hollow-eyed. Oh, no, it, uh, it looks like homicide. <laughs> the hours have been long, endless eternity. How long will I have to wait? How long will they file out of that room and tell me what I already know? The coroner's jury found that Laura Littlefield met her death by poisoning. It's recommended that her husband, Oliver Littlefield, be held to answer. I can hear it now. There's no other verdict. The testimony of the librarian, the clerk at the photographic store, the doctor powerful evidence that lies. Damning evidence that... that will send Oliver Littlefield to the electric chair. Mr. Littlefield, it's all over. I knew it. 
any of what you find. The coroner's jury found the testimony of the librarian, the clerk, and the rest convincing. Undeniable. And, of course, the presence of a glass of poison at your wife's bedside was confusing. Undoubtedly, she had intended to commit suicide. Of course, we know now that she didn't. When will I be arrested? That is a matter for the police, if they decide to prosecute. Of course, under the circumstances... Circumstances? Circumstantial evidence. I didn't murder my wife! I didn't! I didn't! Of course not, Mr. Littlefield. The autopsy settled that. Not a single trace of poison in the body. She died as a result of her illness. No poison? No poison. And lucky for you, Mr. Littlefield. Because if she'd committed suicide as she planned, just how would you have been able to prove your innocence, Mr. Littlefield? Just exactly how? Powerhouse performance there from Hume Cronin. That was Blue Eyes from Suspense. I love that one. Just time to find out now who the hell that Hollywood legend was. Are you about to assay in New York the role of a former president of the United States? Oh. Si, senor. Uh, <laughs> Mr. Ralph Bellamy? Ralph. Uh, Yes, adding to the totally random nature of this here particular episode, the panel were trying to guess the identity of none other than Ralph Bellamy. Not to love any excuse to spend some time with Ralph. What a guy. Well, folks, thank you so much for joining me for this edition of Attaboy Clarence. Remember that if you'd like to listen to over 100 bonus editions of this show, along with movie commentaries, a weekly film club, all 12 series of The Secret History of Hollywood, and much more, then all you have to do is go on over to patreon.com slash attaboysecrets and sign up now. Only takes a moment and your life will be so much more fulfilled if you do. Plus, coming in September, a whole new way to share the love about classic movies. More on that in the coming weeks. Very exciting stuff, though. And completely exclusive to patrons. Go now to patreon.com slash attaboysecrets and become a supporter of the show and access a whole world of old Hollywood treasure including access to my classic movie library, which contains every movie I've talked about this week and every other week. Well, that is all we have time for. Thank you for joining me. And until next time, take the most spectacular care of yourselves and those you love. Until next time, bye for now. Welcome to the future in this year's wildest super fun show for adults. Hey gang, it's Josh Olson. And Joe Dante. And we want to tell you about our podcast. It's about movies. Josh, there are a thousand podcasts about movies. Sure, but ours is different, Joe. That's true, actually. Our guests are writers, directors, musicians, comedians, actors. Hell, we even have other podcasters on. We play no favorites, and they don't talk so much about their own work but about the movies that have influenced them and made them who they are. We call it the movies that made me. We've talked with people like Guillermo del Toro, Little Stevie Van Zandt, Martin Short, Ethan Hawke, William Freakin, Barbara Crampton, Jonathan Ross, Dennis Lehane, Mark Duplass, Adam McKay, Lorraine Newman, Jason Reitman, Alison Anders, Elijah Woods, Stephen Canales, Eli Roth, Joe Bob Briggs, Roger Corman, Bobcat Goldthwait, Leon Douglas, Dana Gould, Martin Campbell, Shane Black, Albert Hughes, Emily Deschanel, Joe Biafra, Ari Fessenden, Nicole Hawson, Ashanti King, Lee Daniels, Rosalind Chow, Clancy Brown, Yardley Smith, Ike Barrow, Steve Arkett, Thomas Miller, Jimmy and Uwe Boll. It may not be highbrow, but it's lots of fun. Subscribe for free on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get podcasts. In color to thrill you as never before. 